Uh, well, thanks uh, for the invitation, Louisa, and uh, congratulations, Adriana, on the publication of, uh, of the book. This is fantastic. And thanks also for the invitation, uh, more unusual in a way, not to uh, come and present exactly, but to come and talk about uh, my work or some link between Adriana's book and my work. I thought that was really a nice thing to do and actually quite unusual. Um, one of the reasons is I suppose it made me reflect on what I like most about scholarship, which is sometimes we, you know, we have important books. This will be an important book for me, one that stays with you. Uh, and sometimes we're fortunate enough that we know the authors of important books, and that relationship also stays with us. So we both think with the book, but also we turn to our, our friends and our colleagues to ask for help. And that's what I frequently do. Uh, so in that, that context, um, the publication of this book means a lot to me. One of the things that I admire most uh, about uh, Adriana's work is that she is, I think, a, a rare post-colonial critic in the field of Arctic exploration, particularly in terms of its, uh, her poignant uh, her poignant insights into the uh, contemporary politics of the Arctic, which has been a kind of growing interest and uh, passion indeed. So uh, why that kind of post-colonial critique in Arctic affairs from the 18th century, more particularly the 19th century to the present, is a difficult one to travel, and why uh, a critique should be rare is something we might uh, want to talk more about. But anyway, I think it's also a really important example of uh, the part of this discussion about the significance of the humanities today. I have often thought that, if I'm making the point here. No. Um, you know, the humanities are so important uh, in understanding the present quite communicating the significance of the humanities isn't something we always do very successfully uh, to those whom we would like to hear us. One of the uh, more perhaps naive uh, reasons for thinking about history, if one has present day concerns, as, as a number of us do, I do, uh, is because you think in a way that history gives you perspective, that you sort of back up and see the present from the past. I know that's not really vintage historiography, but <laughs> I have to admit, there's an element of that which I would reflect on as being uh, not inaccurate. About, and I, I say that because I think um, a lot of people, a lot of people who are passionate about um, regions, probably not only the Arctic, you know, look to history to give some kind of contextual perspective. That makes sense. And of course, uh, one of the traps that I think was alluded to are the dangers of certain kinds of readings of history um, for the way in which they shed light on uh, post-colonial politics or their absence. And we've had two references, I think, to uh, the recent Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, who very um, carefully, very doggedly, uh, used history um, to 
argue for a very particular model of Arctic governance, one which was uh, very nationalistic, one which was ethnically very exclusive, hierarchical. Um, and so one is required to go back and think about the relationship of projects, including this book, I would argue, uh, for how such works, broadly speaking, um, become taken up or used. So if one hopes to learn uh, from history, one of the interesting things that this book does for me is to stress the possibility of unlearning from history, and particularly then trying to think about uh, how we move away from the Victorians as providing a, a, a narrative of continuity with the present. That's what I was getting at. And then, of course, that's something that I felt very palpably when I started doing uh, oral historical research in the Arctic, asking Inuit, uh, who remembered, not exactly these days, but back to the beginning of the 20th century, what they knew about exploration. And I heard some very interesting things, and uh, they had quite a lot to say. But people of different generations, of, uh, who were really of a nascent uh, political class amongst the Inuit. This was um, the first generation who understood that they had the opportunity and the voice and the agency to say no to the state. Okay. They talked about how their parents' generation were not, were not able to do that. Um, and actually, exploration history was interestingly, singularly, an object of hostility for them. It doesn't automatically follow. But they saw within it not only imperialism of a kind, but a, an insistence by newcomers and outsiders on dominating their um, a public understanding of the past uh, that they uh, didn't identify with but more strongly than that, one that they felt was oppressive. I think that's fair to say. And as I say, this was concurrent with a moment of uh, nascent political organization which led to Supreme Court decisions, recognizing Aboriginal title, um, and subsequently comprehensive land claims and negotiation over the ownership of lands and, and self-governance. So understanding the role of historiography and the contesting of histories at this time is what I want to focus on. Specifically, one of the things that this book does then, I refer to unlearning, um, Adriana certainly for me, uh, really got me thinking about authorship in a way that was extremely helpful because the argument that one needed to disaggregate different forms of authorship and to understand the sociology of agency uh, in connection with authorship um, was really, has been really and continues to be really important. Why? Well, both because it offers, it draws attention to uh, the construction of authorship, as has been said, of distributed authorship, um, but also by breaking up the chronological narratives of the narratives of progress and exploration uh, that's really important too. And of course, one of the questions uh, I suppose post-colonial scholars uh, learn to live with the unsettling nature of that, of those kinds of analytical moves. 
resisting the temptation to put another meta narrative or a dominant narrative in their place. Um, and I think that's good. Um, so what I wanted to do, though, is to say that when one begins to think about authorship uh, more carefully, I think it also opens up the possibility of a, well, not exactly a whole new field, but a whole new area of uh, the study of print culture in relation to contemporary uh, state Aboriginal politics today, of which we've seen relatively little so far. So I'm holding here something that I uh, got on my shelf for a while, published in 2000. This is uh, called, this is the final report of the Inuit Bowhead Knowledge Study. And um, really uh, kind of wonderful. It takes place in Nunavut in the area more or less where Frobisher visited. So we're talking about some of the same kind of territory. It's also very close to Lancaster Sound, which is the eastern entrance to the Northwest Passage. And today that's geopolitically a very significant part of the Arctic, both because of the uh, seismic controversy over seismic surveys, uh, which are an instrument of searching for oil and gas, which disturb the marine uh, mammals, it's argued. But of course, there are also political claims and political uh, controversy or contests over, over the power to regulate and decide who owns these waters and who will regulate them and for whose benefit. So one of the things I like about this study, which, um, which uh, draws on Inuit experience, oral history, yes, but the experience of hunters um, describing, uh, to some extent, the behavior of bowheads, particularly their mobility and their circulation. That is to say, the, the maps swum by bowhead whales through the Arctic. Uh, and this was a way of working out what Inuit harvesting needs were which is a political argument. Not to say that the, pop the population, which was traditionally a fairly foreign concept and arguably a flawed one for marine mammals, but to say this is what our harvesting needs are as a basis for arguing what would be a sustainable livelihood. What is to say, if we've been taking these and this is roughly what we use, then this should be the basis of a conversation about how hunting can proceed without necessarily submitting to the, uh, the political logic of the state and its use of wildlife biology um, to determine populations and to make some pretty wild guesses as to what uh, kind of conservation measures indigenous people should follow. So one of the things, uh, just sort of coming back to the book, that I think is important, is that this study was uh, published by the Nunavut Wildlife Management Board. And um, so you think, well, who are they? And this is where at least the, the suggestions, the analysis of this book is very, I think, suggestive for, for further work. The Nunavut Wildlife Management Board is, as it sounds, an Inuit institution, partly, but actually it's a regulatory board that was set up um, by national federal legislation in the wake of the Nunavut um, land claim agreement. So in other words, it was the product of um, court decisions that brought into law legislation which subsequent negotiations turned into a land claim and it created these institutions of what are called co-management boards. So there are a series of boards responsible for regulating 
different aspects of resources and territory out there. And these co-management boards essentially are a form of governance which has uh, half of its members are from Inuit organizations and half are from the state. And then there is a chair who can have a deciding vote and no prize for guessing how the chair uh, is normally assigned. But uh, this has been one of the more successful co-management boards. So I think, um, and although of course a lot has been written today about co-management boards, I I want to invite you to think with me a little bit about how one writes the long-durée history of this form of governance. So on the one hand, Adriana, I think, teaches us to be careful about looking for alternative long-durée histories of co-management. To say, well, at least, if we're going to look for a a kind of a longer history of co-management, which seems a good idea, then to disaggregate uh, the authorship of this. So, uh, and to, in a sense, think both about how and where it's published, as as, as well as who the people are who are the authors. And authorship has become really important, understandably, in post-colonial Inuit politics. So actually in this report, at the back, it's maybe not light enough in here, and you're welcome to look at it afterwards, you've got both, of course, the tables setting out who the people are who provided the knowledge, the individuals by name. You also have the methodology of the interviews, who, uh, how many interviews there were, so you can see um, quite well and fairly transparently they have documented the processes of exchange, of map drawing, if you like, that uh, produced this volume. So that's one example. Um, and as I say, they have published it themselves. But of course that's an invitation to think more about what that means. And in fact, I want to suggest that there are a whole range of publication models or of authorship models. I realize they're not the same, and that some, some more careful work would be required to, to uh, say more about this. Here's another um, co-authored Arctic um, report, Impacts of a Warming Arctic Highlights. Uh, so this is a politically very important piece of PR. Um, the Arctic Council Commission, through the... Um, I think the, uh, they developed through the Arctic, they commissioned the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment, which is like an IPCC report, which was completed and published in 2004, 2005. Uh, an assessment of, the author, of, of synthesizing scientific findings about climate change. And this has had a huge political impact and shapes governance. It actually shapes very important ways how we understand what international cooperation in the Arctic is. It, become, it stands in for, in a sense, the language, indeed, maybe the rhetoric of internationalism and the role of science as a vehicle in uh, producing a peaceful, cooperative Arctic. So one could look at um, publication, publishing strategies and, and authorship uh, there to see a very different model of work. Yeah, we can. We need a bit of light. Um, so here's a. Thanks. Have some lights on, and then maybe off afterwards. So we were talking. I was talking a moment about a moment ago about Lancaster Sound, 
One of the virtues of this map is it doesn't use names like that. So it challenges you to orient yourself without the inherited place names of exploration. But in any case, um, so here is also a very contemporary form of uh, collective authorship in the Arctic. It's a project that the anthropologist Claudio Porta uh, and I did, and we were we went up to Pond Inlet here, uh, known as Matimitelak, Matimatelak, pardon me, and uh, we worked with elders who were uh, drawing trails. So this was part of a project to show the Inuit topography and routes across the Arctic. Um, which they did, and it was fantastic. So, um, a couple of highlights, and then I'll say a little bit more about authorship, and why I think authorship is highlighted, uh, why it's problematic and interesting. So one of the reasons I really wanted to do this was uh, when I would uh, go to seminars down the road at Chatham House about the future of the Arctic, you would have uh, a lawyer looking very distinguished stand up and say, well, yeah, the North, we're talking about the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And people would say, well, uh, no one really lives up there, so if you had one or two passages through the waters, that would count as, the question was, what counts as use, such that it triggers certain uh, articles in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. This guy just stood up there and everyone said, oh, yes, he's a famous law professor. So if he says, you know, a couple of passages through this area. And I was trying to, again, I'm really captured by moments in which so few words can be spoken and carry such authority. And to me, uh, it was rather close to, Adriana, what you've been talking about in a way, the map of the Northwest Passage carries so much freight with it, and yet it does so much political work. And in a sense, the fewer the words that are used, the more political work is being, being done. So one of the things I wanted to do here that was really exciting, this is one of the first maps for the elders, uh, and this won't be quite the video I show you, it's another time. Um, we're showing the crossing routes here on the North... Northwest Passage. It's probably Lancaster Sound. So I sat there with Inuit talking, uh, explaining to me and to others, are just drawing routes, showing where the crossing routes are. And that's quite important for human rights law and the claim that these are a homeland, that people actually inhabit the waters and the ice. So I thought uh, it was triggered by the desire that next time someone got up to say, well, you know, it's just water, you can sail through it, nobody lives there. I wanted to have something to show the country, to try and begin to show how waters are subject to human occupancy and also, of course, occupied by bowheads. Uh, and finally here, uh, how is this map published? Well, it's not published, but it does have the names of the elders who contributed, who drew the lines on the map. And what we did was we printed this out in Toronto, having digitized it, and of course we sent half a dozen maps back to the community uh, where, they have, where they seem to have liked them and um, put them up. Okay, thank you. What I want to do is uh, next, maybe last, to show you a little video clip about the making of this map. It might take me a minute to uh, get it rolling. 
One of the presuppositions, though, that comes out of land claims history, the last 30 or 40 years of the politics of land in the Arctic, is that authors of land claim maps, so when, when the state-funded uh, cartographers went around to communities and interviewed elders and got them to draw their use of the land, the authors of these maps were kind of nearly always in the first instant, in the first instance individuals. And so as Inuit acquired in the late 20th century the reputation for being skilled draftsmen, cartographers, land claims maps became increasingly associated in the heads, I think, of most people, certainly me, as the product of a draftsman. And I think that there's something to be said about what you're trying to tell us in this book and the supposition today that Inuit cartography is the product of draftsmen. Because thousands and thousands of maps have been drawn by Inuit individually at a table as kind of witnesses to their own uh, traditions of using the land resources. What we did seemed a little bit weird. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why at the time. But if I show you how that map was drawn, here we need to open the... Let's see. Remind me where I find the memories. Computer. Huh? Where's my computer? Go back to the start menu. Uh-huh. If it doesn't show up, you might want to use the other USB port. Uh, you sure? So I've used it once. Let's see. Let's take it out and see what happens. There we go. So I can open that. And then... So this is about a minute. And do I have sound? Uh, I don't know. But while you're um, with or without the sound, these are the elders coming into the community center uh, before the map for the map drawing exercise. And we used uh, a map about the size of this section of the room. So people took their shoes off and walked on the map. It wasn't on a table. But The map I've shown you today is reduced in scale. So what's relatively unusual about the video I'm showing you now, but in a sense shouldn't be unusual, is it's not about the draftsman. It's about the Inulariya, the elder society, drawing as a collective activity. And of course, they're mainly talking to each other about places rather than to me. So we haven't invited them in the same way to be witnesses, draftsmen witnesses to their history, but actually as a social activity for the elder society. And that produced many stories and actually a different feeling amongst them. But I think I want to conclude by asking, well, what does that suggest, then, about the nature of their knowledge and the way in which knowledge, in an everyday way, actually, is shared? Thank you.